before we, we, uh, we come to the reading, let's first pray. Heavenly Father, please speak to us in your word this morning. We're coming to some words that are challenging, and so soften our hearts. Give us a, a deeper understanding and pierce our hearts with what you have to tell us, with what, with what, your, with what your word is to us. We need to hear this. Form the image of Christ more in us and build us up in faith as we come to you always. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are, again, we are in, a, in the middle of a series that we've recently begun called Being Whole Disciples, which is based on the Sermon on the Mount. And being whole disciples, both in the fact that we are disciples of a whole kingdom, of a kingdom of wholeness, a kingdom that, uh, where we are being restored, but also the call to discipleship is one that requires our whole selves, that this is what Jesus is calling us to. And this is what we are learning about here, more about the demands of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And so today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 30. And this is the word of God. Please pay careful attention. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and, those who, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of God. Well, it sounds a little strange to say, but it is possible to do everything right and still be a failure. And one subject that illustrates quite this quite well is music. 
A skilled musician can be extremely proficient technically. They may be able to play a complex piece of music and hit every note with absolute precision. But at the same time, it's possible for them to fail at truly playing that piece of music as it was intended, as it ought to have been done, if they don't do it with any sort of depth or feeling or soul behind it. You can have one skilled musician hit every single note just as it's written on the paper, but without the emotion and the feeling, it kind of comes up empty. It only takes another musician to come along and to play as it play it as it was intended, not only in the perfection of notes, but from the depths of the soul, where you can really begin to hear that and feel that composition come alive. That's how it was intended to be played. That's how it was intended to be heard. Perfection without or without the depths of the soul is devoid of life. In the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is outlining what it means to be a disciple of the kingdom. And in doing so, he says that his kingdom is one of righteousness. And so disciples are therefore to follow him in living righteously because it's fitting for life in the kingdom. Yet at the same time, he begins to open up a little bit more about what this righteousness involves. Righteousness is is more than hitting all the notes with the right precision. It can be done with perfection according to what the what a paper says, but similar to truly playing a musical, a musical composition as it was intended, there's a depth and there's a heart that's necessary to live truly righteous. And if discipleship means following Jesus with the whole person, with the whole self, then righteousness according to his kingdom requires a whole person righteousness. And that's what Jesus begins to introduce here in the first section of our text. This first paragraph, verses 17 through 20. What Jesus does here is he has this first paragraph, which is an overall principle, and then he's going to give some various applications of it. We're not going to look at them all today, um, but we're going to look at the first two. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount then here, he's describing a new kingdom that, that he is building upon the earth. A kingdom whose values are countercultural in the world in which it's been brought and where it's growing. It's something new that's happening. It's fresh. It's exciting. It's so different. We, when we first looked at the Beatitudes, we saw the values there. Last week, the idea of salt and light, and then be a witness by your works. And so then for these people sitting at Jesus' feet here on the mountain, listening to his words, and they begin to hear, okay, bearing witness to the kingdom by my works, this would have then raised questions for them on how they're to live. If life is being redefined in this sort of new radical living, then that means that the old ways that were given to us are finished, right? You're giving us something new to replace the old? Can we toss aside all these old commandments that seem really strict? And these are similar questions that many believers have asked. Essentially, this is the old, there's this old strict way of living that we see in the Old Testament. But now because of Jesus, what do I do with that? Can I just toss it aside? Because there seems like there's this great discontinuity. But Jesus says no. First of all, he upholds the validity of the Old Testament for disciples. Right at the beginning. Do not think that I have come to abolish or come to nullify the law or the prophets. Now, the law and the prophets was how these first century Jewish people referred to the Old Testament. And 
he says explicitly here that he hasn't come to nullify what they've said or come to put aside the principles. Actually, he fulfills them. But to understand this, we first need to understand what the Bible is. There are a lot of different misconceptions about the Bible. It's just simply a book of rules, a bunch of mishmash stories together. Well, the Bible is actually one large unified story of God's redemption. And the Old Testament lays out patterns then with increasing detail on how God would redeem the broken, fallen world and the sinners who are in it. And the story then culminates in Jesus with everything in the Old Testament pointing forward to him, pointing forward to his person, his work, his kingdom, all of this including his righteousness. But though he upholds their validity, he also comes, though, as a final authority showing these disciples and showing you and me about what that Old Testament law really requires. He begins to pull everything away and show there's a deeper underlying principle underneath them all. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. Jesus is the definitive authority on these old commandments, and he will tell us then what they really mean that they are pointing to him and to his righteousness. And then he tells us then just what true righteousness is. It's not a righteousness that's merely external or one that just simply checks off the boxes, but it's one that goes down to the depths of the heart. This is the righteousness of the kingdom that will define his people. Jesus doesn't raise the standard. He doesn't redefine it. In fact, I even hate to use the word redefine because it sounds like he's putting a new spin on it. But what he's doing instead is he's opening them up to us to show what was really underneath everything all the time. To see just how deep it always has gone. And he continues by saying there's an enduring quality to them in verse 18. That even though they're seen in a new light here in Christ, it, it doesn't mean that this old way can just simply be discarded. Because until everything is accomplished... Until full redemption of the world and when the kingdom of God comes in full here, the law which points ahead to it remains in place just as firmly as the heavens and the earth do. And so Jesus is going to outline the deeper principles of the law, old law here and to show then how his kingdom is in a, in a heightened continuity with them. And so that means there's no room to relax the standards from the old ways. And that's because Jesus cares about righteousness. It matters to him. His kingdom is one of perfect righteousness, and he de desires his disciples to be committed to righteousness also. Let's step back, take a step back for a moment. Well, this must be like the wind of God moving here. <laughs> Why does righteousness really matter? A lot of people, you might, you know, some people might be thinking, well, there are those Christians again. Talking about righteousness, that's what they always do. I think they're a bunch of self-righteous people. Well, sometimes we do come across a little more self-righteous than we do righteous. But we talk about righteousness, though, because it matters to Jesus. Because if he didn't care about it, he wouldn't have spoken these words. Righteousness pleases God. He is the definition of righteousness. I think there's more than just what seems to be a simplistic answer of, well, it's what he likes for why it's important. Because this righteousness, this particularly this sort of righteousness that God demands here, reflects God's wholeness in the world. And as I refer to wholeness, I mean his complete whole person, 
wholeness, right? His whole, his whole being that demonstrates his righteousness. All of God does. And, our, and disciples then show the world God's right, wholeness in righteousness with our whole persons committed to righteousness. But there's also wholeness, though, in another sense. Whole as in made whole or flourishing. A life of flourishing is found in his kingdom. And that's because the righteousness that he sets forward is one that ultimately leads into the true flourishing of humanity. Truly righteous living isn't individualistic. It plays itself out in the context of community and for its good. But we can also recognize that righteousness is hard to come by. All right, most people want to live according to some standard of righteousness, regardless of how complete it is or not. That's how we gauge whether or not someone's a good person, right? So what's the natural inclination when we think about this? Well, let's just drop the standard of rules to gain a, a better sense of being enough to feel meritorious about something. Focus so much then on just the bare literalist meaning than to the detriment of the, the greater spirit or the meaning. Only paying attention to the external and not actually and ignoring then that we are more than just bodies, that we are souls also. It's a way of reading them in such a restricted way that ignores the fuller meaning and it also permits more actions that aren't in accord with the spirit of the law. And that's what the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of this day, did. In verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were like musicians that were highly skilled, and they hit all the notes correctly on the sheet. But for as technical as they were, they missed the true heart and soul that the depth of the music required them to play for it to be beautiful. And Jesus says that if your righteousness doesn't exceed theirs, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. These were, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, these were the extra special holy people. How could they ever keep the rules beyond them? Well, exceeding here doesn't mean to do better. It means to go deeper. Don't follow after righteousness with just your body, but with your soul also. Jesus tells you and me that righteousness goes to the heart. It involves our whole persons. Whole person discipleship entails pursuing whole person righteousness. It's the main theme of it. And this involves the intents of the heart. And what Jesus will do then is he'll take this principle and he'll apply it to six different Old Testament laws. And he'll show the deeper meaning behind them all and that scratching on the surface or the deeper meaning than simply scratching on the surface to show what true righteousness is. And then so people like you and me can learn about Jesus' righteousness. And further, if you are a disciple, you can also learn to live as citizens bearing this righteousness. Now, we're not going to look at all six today. All right. this is, we're only going to look at the first two. This is a part one of part three sermon. All right. um, but we're going to keep coming back, though, to this First of all, this main idea of the whole person righteousness that we see in verses 17 through 20. And we're going to come back to that and see all these different applications in relation to it. And so today we're just going to look at the first two, the one in verse 21 and then verse 27. The commandments against murder and adultery. 
And for this, I want to note three points in this as we read them. First, whole person righteousness involves the heart. It involves the heart. We kind of said that before, but we're going to dig a little deeper into what that means. Two of the Ten Commandments we have given here. The, the prohibition against murder, we have the Sixth Commandment. And then the prohibition against adultery, which is the Seventh Commandment. Now that sounds easy enough. At least for murder in our society. It's not, it's, you know, murder's not a common thing in our society. Not murdering anyone is pretty typical and pretty straightforward. If your neighbor tells you that they've never murdered anyone before, chances are you will probably believe them. And the same went then also for this highly religious Jewish culture in which Jesus was ministering to these people that he was speaking to. Murder wasn't a common occurrence there. And it's likely that adultery wasn't too common either. And so this made it all the easier for these people to check off the box. But Jesus, though, reveals the fuller and deeper meaning of both of these laws. You think about the, the bare literalist idea. You know, we hear this all the time. Well, I, I'm a good person. I've never murdered anyone. But the offense, though, isn't just the actions. Jesus applies it deeper. And he reveals that to live, really live then, according to these laws, gets at the heart and the intentions. It's like he takes these commandments and he, and he, he describes them as being buckets sealed with lids. And each bucket is labeled murder, adultery. And Jesus then lifts the lid from every bucket, and then he dumps it out for us to see, well, what's actually really in there? Murder isn't just unjustly taking a life. It's the intent. It's the attitude, the disposition against another. It's the rifts in our personal relationships. Murder is simply the highest and the most blatant offense that comes from the root of anger. It's the fruit which grows out of malice and hatred. Anger is an offense of this commandment, even if it's not physically carried out. In a similar fashion, adultery isn't limited to sexual relations apart from God's design of a husband and a wife. It's the lustful disposition and intent, even momentarily for pleasure outside of its intended context. Like murder, adultery is the most visible offense which stems from the root of lust. And also, as it, Jesus takes it deeper, it go, it's not merely men towards women, but it's also women towards men. See, adultery and murder don't just pop out of nowhere. They grow. They manifest themselves as fruit that comes from the heart, from the attitudes and the desires which were already there. See, there's a deeper principle here regarding righteousness. It goes to the heart. And it's only fitting if God has created us, again, both body and soul. No, one, no sin committed in the body is done apart from the most inner part of one's being, from the soul. And so whole person righteousness then accounts for our whole selves, for our actions, for our words, for our thoughts, our, in, our inclinations. But what makes intentions so bad? Why do they condemn us, even if they're not seen by anyone? We've all, I'm sure, heard the common excuse, well, if it doesn't hurt anybody, then it's okay, right? But here's the thing. Deep down, we know that intentions matter. 
If they didn't, then most people wouldn't be shocked or disgusted when outwardly upstanding people are revealed to be secretly immoral in their hidden lives. Or thoughts and attitudes below the surface in these people that we find unsavory, that we find hypocritical, racist, etc. But why is the why the outrage? I mean, God, it didn't if it didn't hurt anyone, it's okay, right? But even if their actions or words don't directly hurt an individual, there's still the moral outrage and the disgust at their secret life because we know that intentions matter. Are we willing to turn that diagnostic back on ourselves? Don't my own, don't your own intentions matter too? Even if our inner selves are never revealed, they still condemn us because of where they're directed. Anger and lust, like other attitudes and the words and actions which come from them, are denigrations of the image of God. Anger is an inward assault upon others who bear the image of God. Lust is to objectify people created with dignity bestowed upon them by God, and it pulls them down from the place where he has crowned them. God takes this seriously because when someone attacks the image of God, they attack implicitly the one whose image they bear. See, it doesn't really matter if our attitudes or our actions don't hurt anyone or not, or whether or not they hear our words. They're still not neutral. But the second point, though, a whole person righteousness brings us to our knees. A whole person righteousness brings us to our knees. It means that God accounts for our whole person's body and soul. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. That doesn't only make it hard, it makes it downright impossible. But there's something vitally important to keep in mind. I don't know if you have a Bible with you or if you're just looking at at the, the text that's in your worship folder, but when Jesus first announces the arrival of his kingdom, right before this, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, righteousness is bound with the kingdom. And righteousness is the pursuit for disciples of that kingdom. But repentance is the posture of the kingdom. Repentance of our unrighteousness and our coming to Jesus in humility is the proper posture, not only for entrance, but also as we continue and we follow. The law of God, particularly as Jesus plums the depth of its meaning, brings us to our knees. How can we not, when it points out our inner inclinations, our thoughts, our motives, that they aren't quite what they, what they, they ought to be? We're brought to our knees when we recognize more and more of just how often it is that we offend him. And the severity then of what they bring forth when we previously thought that they were innocuous. This is a kingdom of righteousness that Jesus has. Not a kingdom of our self-righteousness. And Jesus calls to question those who think are pretty good people. And if we recognize the truth of his words and we're left then with nothing else than to drop to his knees in humble reliance and humility, begging for mercy. And that's when we also remember that this is a kingdom then which is ruled by a king of grace. Not grace in that Jesus would just simply dismiss our our unrighteousness or that he'd give a little nod and a wink and sweep it away. But he himself said he didn't come to set aside the law. 
and that it continues to have an enduring character. But his grace then here is that he himself, the one who knew no sin, would step in the place of unrighteous sinners to bear the consequences in their place. Friends, it's the cross that shows us who we really are. When we look at the cross and we see the bloody Jesus hanging on there, for us, we remind that this is what it took for people like me and you to actually come into the kingdom. To those who lack righteousness and are brought to their knees before him, he smiles then and he gives them his very righteousness. The one who came to fulfill the law with his own, with his whole heart. And as the son of God also, he knows just how deep the demands of the law go. And he then came to be the very embodiment of the righteousness that is found in them. And yet then, what about then following him with, with this whole heart? If true righteousness entails the whole person, then we need our whole persons changed if we're to take seriously this call to follow him as disciples. We looked previously at the beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Well, Jesus pulls the lid from, from the top of the law and he shows us just how deep and how much we really need righteousness. And the life of discipleship then has a desire for it. Discipleship is a disposition of humility and repentance and seeking mercy in faith because it recognizes that it doesn't have any on its own. It continues to yearn and long for what it can't do, to have a disposition inclined to live righteously from the inside out. And yet there's this promise that we have also of satisfaction, that our desires will be met and will be satisfied. Jesus says that the, the law, that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Well, after, after the condemnation that was in the prophets here, the prophets then spoke of God's promise then that he would wash them clean, that he would remove their old stony hearts and give them a clean heart, a pure heart, a heart of flesh. He would reinvigorate and renew them from the inside out. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus fulfills this. He graciously gives his people a new inclination by his spirit, which he gives them. And so he does renew us from the inside. And so humility, therefore, means that we not only ask for mercy to be forgiven in our times of unrighteousness, but it also means that we ask for God's mercy to restore us and to renew our inner selves. It knows that we have no inner strength on our own to come to him in total dependence. And so we, or we come to him in total dependence for every aspect of our lives. And God is just so merciful that he would do that. God changes our affections and he pours his spirit out upon us. The spirit of God himself in us then to affect and change righteousness that is also in us. And yet that only comes through grace. It comes by coming to God through faith in Jesus. It's the merciful work of God to renew our hearts, which he's doing right now, which then allows us to pursue righteousness with our whole lives. That brings us to our third point then, that whole person righteousness pursues it seriously. Whole person righteousness pursues it seriously. <clears throat> Grace and the pursuit of righteousness aren't opposed to one another. If you are lovingly committed to following Jesus wholeheartedly because of the grace that he has displayed to you, 
then you will take sin seriously in your life. Sin is opposed to flourishing. It has deleterious effects upon individuals and upon communities. And that's just the same for the secret inner habits and the inclinations of the heart. It will end up destroying you. It will end up destroying those around you. It will end up wrecking the vitality of your relationship that you have with God. And Jesus takes it seriously, or else he wouldn't have given us then these vivid descriptions of what it means to take it seriously. And we need to see both of these, these sins and their sinful dispositions in the serious light. It's easy to harbor these attitudes and thoughts. It's easy to overlook them as being relatively minor, not being that big of a deal. They're not hurting anyone. But Jesus says, okay, your anger, your bitterness, insults, fights, whatever it is, you know where you put them? Drop them in that bucket over there that says murder. See? See where they go? It's what they are. Lust, glancing looks, pornography, what do you do with these? Drop them in the adultery bucket because that's what they really are. You can't just toss these aside and put them in some other category. When Jesus expands our understanding and he shows us that even our attitudes and thoughts of anger and lust are the same, as, or, or our thoughts and attitudes of anger or lust, and we look at them through this lens then of murder and adultery, it ought to give us pause because we no longer just see them as minor instances but we begin to see them in a whole new light of just how seriously Jesus takes them. And then so should his disciples. And seeing them in this way then brings a whole new level of urgency in our approach to dealing with sin and pursuing after righteousness. He expands our understanding of murder to include anger, but he also continues to extend the applications also into this law or of this law into our relationships. Because righteousness isn't just between you and God. Righteousness is also between you and others. And the horizontal relationships that someone has affects also their vertical relationship with God. And he uses the example of someone going to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, and they're, they're bringing a sacrifice. And they get there, and they remember that this person then has a relationship that needs to be reconciled. And so Jesus says, leave the offering there and go and make peace first. Jesus is conveying a certain importance and an urgency to getting relationships settled quickly. And he gives another example to get across this urgency as well. Two people are on their way to what would be a debtor's court. A one person has obviously not paid the other person what's owed. So instead of waiting around, then quickly get the issue settled on your way to court. Don't wait lest you fall into the hands of the judge. Jesus is stressing the urgency of reconciling our strained relationships quickly. Why would he include these examples then of applications of resolving anger? Do you, ever have, do you have trouble with acorns in your yard? We do. It's not our oak tree. It's the one that, that the neighbors have. But if not removed quickly, those acorns, as probably many of you know, drop and they fall into the, the ground and they will... If you don't get rid of them, they will begin to quickly sprout this long taproot. And you might have maybe about three inches that's grown from the top of that acorn, of that little sprout of the tree. But you tug on that, and you've got to pull really, really hard because that taproot's at least six inches. And if you pull the top, and the top of that little oak, that, that little oak tree sapling 
just pops right off. Then you have to actually dig in there because it's going to keep burrowing down. It's going to be harder and harder and harder. If it had only been dealt with earlier, you realize as you're digging in there with a trowel, everything would have been much easier. If you let rifts in your relationships to remain, or you allow difficulties to remain unresolved, then there are bound to be further consequences. And time will only make them more and more difficult to reconcile. So come to them with a degree of urgency. Because if not, they will embed themselves and they will become a sentence of frustration, will become a source of bitterness and anger between you and the other party. And resolving these issues then is also bearing witness to the flourishing of the kingdom. Hearts that have experienced grace will yearn to see relationships that are made right and reconciled. And hearts that know grace will also be enabled over the long term, though it may be costly, to engage in the work of reconciliation. And Jesus continues to press this serious urgency by also then giving an application toward lust. In verse 29, the pursuit of righteousness is to be taken so seriously that it might be costly, though from a certain perspective, because what's better is what Jesus is asking. Only part, you know, part of you, or uh, yeah, having part of you go into the, the kingdom of heaven or the whole person being cast aside. Because loving righteousness means hating sin. And that means seeing sin as it is, evil and destructive. It's odious in the sight of a disciple, not of, out of a sense of his or her self-righteousness, but because it offends the very righteousness of God. And like with the applications then we have to murder and to, to anger, the serious urgency of hating sin might involve cutting things out of your life for the sake of loving righteousness. It might be awkward at times. It might be hard. I think Jesus' specific example or, and his reference to the right hand gets at that. Not that lefties here are excluded, but because the right hand was considered the dominant hand. But Jesus' words, though, are also intended to give us pause. Because what's worth more? It's really a call to wisdom. Are you willing to adjust your life now and take personal measures for the righteousness of the kingdom or not do so and put yourself at great peril? See, if the kingdom of God is truly a countercultural community which follows after Jesus, then its love and its pursuit of righteousness is one of the ways that it will stand out in the world. And it's done not because we're trying to be a self-righteous people, not because we're separating ourselves with a sense of moral superiority, but because Jesus loves righteousness and we are seeking him with what we don't have naturally on our own. Pursuing righteousness to the level that Jesus says that the kingdom involves, which is a whole person righteousness, means that then we ought to be the most humble people in the world. And so as we continue then over the next couple of weeks to explore this a little more, May we always come back to him, asking him to mercifully change us so that our hearts and our whole selves then might be properly in tune with the beautiful music of the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to this 